0: What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. It is slowly becoming clear that we are heading towards a deep ecological catastrophe. Our society's carbon footprint and its impact have been known for some time, and already we are starting to see the effects in terms of melting ice, warming oceans, and more frequent extreme weather. This will contribute to food and water shortages, political unrest, and migration crises that we are ill-prepared for. In a context such as this, it has become urgent that we rethink the natural world and our relationship to it. But knowing where to start is difficult. Fortunately, John Bellamy Foster has stepped forward with just such a book. Picking up where his Marx's ecology left off 20 years ago, The Return of Nature, Socialism, and Ecology starts with the funerals of both Karl Marx and Charles Darwin, kicking off a story of the many people who worked in their combined shadow. Foster guides us through a century of scientific development in the relatively new field of ecology, showing how many of its founders were influenced by the socialist critique of capitalism and vice versa. What readers will find are a collection of texts and figures who understood that an economic model that prioritizes profit above all else will eventually have to start asking more of the earth than it can afford to give, incurring long and deep debts that we are now starting to pay. On the one hand, many ecologists have found Marx's critical analysis of capitalism helpful for thinking dynamically about nature and scientific practice. On the other hand, ecologists have offered to socialists a number of theoretical concepts and frameworks for their own thinking. In between are a number of other characters who make their own contributions to discussions on economics and nature, as well as literary literature, history, epidemiology, race, oppression, and emancipation. The product of several decades of research, this is a book excessively written, but rigorously researched, with footnotes meticulously collected. For those looking for a jumping off point through various archives, it reveals a hidden history of the relationship between science and sociology, economics, and nature, and gives us characters who are able to see the seeds we were sowing, but also an unyielding faith that it doesn't have to be this way that a more sustainable world is possible. John Bellamy Foster is a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. He is the author of a number of books including Marx's Ecology. With The Return of Nature he won the 2020 Isaac Deutscher Memorial Prize. He is also the editor and a frequent contributor at the Socialist Periodical, The Monthly Review. John Bellamy-Foster, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh,
2: Hello, I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I always like to start interviews by asking our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, So could you maybe tell listeners a bit about who you are and what your work and research tends to focus on?
2: I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon, and I'm editor of Monthly monthly review in New York. My uh, interests for many years have been Marxian theory, political economy, and ecology.
1: Yeah, and working at those intersections, yes. you've had a lot to lot to write about, I'm sure. So um to kick things off with uh, working through this book, you're right near the beginning quote, the word ecology was first introduced by Ernst Haeckel in 1866, the year before the publication of Karl Marx's Capital, as a way of referring to Darwin's notion of the economy of nature, end quote. So for you, both in this book and your earlier book, Marx's Ecology, this is not an incidental anecdote, but speaks to the deep connection between marxist and socialist critiques of capitalism and the field of ecology and the last couple centuries of scientific development more broadly so as a way into this conversation could you explain why these two fields cannot be understood without each other
2: well first uh on the on the term ecology Heckel introduced it in 1866 and and yet it didn't really enter into the English language. It wasn't wasn't, uh, used um, until uh, much later. It wasn't introduced into English um, until a decade later, and uh, it didn't really become a concept that uh, was used even in a technical sense prior to the early 20th century. So ecology was not a term that was really used in Marx's day, although although Heckel had introduced it in 1866, by which he he meant uh, simply what Charles Darwin in *The Origin of the Species* had called the economy of nature. But but what uh, socialists used, what Marx used, um, he he was the first to introduce it into uh, social analysis was the notion of metabolism or, um, and Marx used the concept of social metabolism, as well as the universal metabolism of nature and uh, what he called the irreparable rift in, in, um, in the metabolism that capitalism introduced so uh he he um, he employed the notion of metabolism, taking it from his his friend uh, Roland Daniels, who was a scientist and and a political comrade and died early and and Daniels wrote a great ecological work that only had one reader, and that was karl Marx and Marx uh, adopted the the concept of metabolism to explain the fundamental material relations, what we call ecology now. And that notion of metabolism really became the basis for what we call ecosystem analysis. So metabolism, the way Marx used it, was was actually used in in the way that we use ecology now and uh and in terms of ecosystems theory and it in it had to do with a very deep materialism it had to do with the fact that if we look at social relations and we look at social production it is at the same time a interrelation with nature a met- metabolic relation with nature and it's actually out of this Analysis. This kind of analysis that modern ecology arose uh, in Marx's time and after, and Marx was uh, in, in introducing it into social science and in looking at it in in a systematic way was one of um, the precursors of modern ecological thought.
1: Yeah. So. This book kicks off uh, with both the funerals of Marx and Darwin, who died within about a year of each other. Much of the first chapter focuses on a man who was in attendance at both funerals, E. Ray Lancaster. Responsible for both the introduction of the term ecology into English, he also coined the term bionomics, the branch of biology that deals with the relationships between living organisms and their environment. So can you explain these early theoretical developments in how Lancaster's interactions with Marx helped plant some intellectual seeds in the early days of ecology?
2: Well, uh, Lancaster is actually a, a very interesting figure. His father was, uh, a, a socialist and a doctor and a major, uh, a major, uh, analyst of, uh, ecological problems and, uh, problems of, of disease and, and uh, work relations. In England, in Marx's day, I don't know if Marx and, and Lancaster's father knew each other, uh, but Ray Lancaster, E. Ray Lancaster, was, um, was actually the protege of Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley. And he also ended up being a close friend of Karl Marx. And Lancaster was the leading biologist, zoologist in England in the generation after Darwin and Huxley. He's a very significant figure. And uh, Marx and he, in in the later years of, of Marx's life, struck up a close relationship. Lancaster happens to be very significant. He was a he was a a socialist of a kind, more like a, a Fabian socialist than than uh, a, a socialist in Marxist sense. But that um, was enough for them to to have this uh, close relation. And not, they obviously uh, dealt a lot with materialism and science. And, and Lancaster was ended up being very important. He um in he developed uh the ecological critique in Britain for the first time. He, one of his famous essays was was um the effacement of nature by man. And he was uh really as as I said at the very top of British science. He developed an ecological perspective. He introduced, as you said, um the notion of the, the word ecology into english but he preferred bionomics and he he dealt with um, one of the things he did was establish the, the british marine biological institute which um, uh, on the basis that we could we could understand ecological relations that is the interrelations between species and their environment and their nutrient cycles Best by looking at at aquariums and at uh, biological ma- um, marine stations. He was also one of the leading figures in in uh, the development of um, the, the combating viruses and developing, um, you know, uh, what we call the microbe hunters of the day. He was an expert on that and a leader in uh, with respect to the African sleeping sickness. And he was the one who first. Uh, uh, pointed out, argued, uh, demonstrated that all all diseases, uh, whether in humans and animals, are are the product of, of human actions. All the modern diseases, epidemics, are really uh, the product of human actions, which he traced to capitalism. He was um, a uh, a leading critic of um, of uh, species extinction. The the leading uh, analyst of how we were driving species uh, into s- extinction in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And he, um, in developing, in, in dealing with issues like nutrient cycles and metabolism and ecology, he had an enormous influence on the later development of ecology. For example, the Arthur George Tansley, who uh, was the figure, also a kind of fa- Fabian socialist, who developed the concept of ecosystem? He was a Lancaster student, and so these things um, were transferred. And uh, but but Lancaster was was uh, the leading materialist thinker of his time, a very strong opponent of teleology. That is notions that um, that um, things are predetermined, that are are, um, determined by final causes like God. He was a very, very strong materialist. And I think that's what brought him and Marx together. But they shared this sort of critical ecological perspective, which is quite amazing uh, considering the time.
1: Yeah, moving along uh, to another major character in the story you're telling, you look at William Morris, Uh, You point out that he was quite impressed when he read Marx's Capital, but also that he brought his own distinct interests as a poet and novelist firmly planted in English Romanticism to his politics. And he developed a rather insightful critique of the alienating effects of capitalism on labor and work and art and literature. Can you explain how Morris's more literary and artistic and romantic sensibilities helped him contribute to the socialist critique of capitalism?
2: Well, for those who don't really know who Morris is, and uh, a lot of people in in the United States don't know, um, but of course, I think everyone in England knows who William Morris is pretty much. Uh, anyone anyone who um, as is uh, educated in, in English culture, he was really the, uh, a Renaissance figure. He was uh, a poet, artist, uh, the, the founder of the art and crafts movement, really the a, a fundamental uh, um, uh, leader in, in all of the aesthetic fields. He was a, a painter, he was, uh, he, Specialized in the decorative arts, and uh, and uh, he was also a leading socialist and and and, uh, a romantic thinker. If you're interested in Morris, uh, the best biography is is E. P. Thompson's William Morris. But uh, Morris um, came out of the Romantic movement, and we sometimes think of the Romantic movement as inherently conservative. But he was very influenced by John Ruskin, who had uh, an artistic critique, a, a critique rooted in the arts um, of 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 capitalist capitalism as it was developing in England at the time. And Morris was influenced by this and went further to the left uh, than than uh, Ruskin in in eighteen eighty three. Shortly before Marx died, Morris read uh Marx's capital in french and hes yeah he was inspired by it he brought together the romantic critique with the with the socialist critique coming out of marx and created a synthesis that's um unique within Marxism, but one that we we need to hold on to, that was very ecological. And he basically argued that that, uh, art is the expression of man's joy and labor, and that all labor, if it's non-alienated, he really picked up on the concept of alienation uh, before, via Ruskin and Marx, before Marx's economic and philosophical Manuscripts were were published, and he recognized that any work that does not have art in it is alienated. That human beings, if they're free, they express uh, their their um, their labor in the form of art. Art is integrated into it, and from there he went on to a a very fundamental critique of. Of capitalism, of how it degraded labor, the simplification of labor, the the waste, the fact that uh, that we uh, were producing use, useless goods, uh, and uh, with with useless labor, and and uh, that this was all tied into a system of of exploitation. But what's important is that Morris always tied this to an aesthetic critique that uh, went much further. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable case because uh, he, he was influenced by Ruskin. He did have a romantic critique, but then he read Marx and he crossed the river of fire as E.P. Thompson said, and uh, quoting from Morris himself, and became a socialist and fought for socialism uh, more than any other. <laughs> figure in England in its time, uh, the principal figure in the Socialist League and working together with Eleanor Marx and uh, other figures of the time.
1: Yeah. um, So as Morris's thought developed, a central problem for him would be the ways people organize their societies with the urban, rural, or the town and country divides, slowly but surely becoming more and more stark and also demanding new ways of conceiving our relationship to our natural surroundings. What was Morris starting to see here?
2: Well, as um, a romantic critic, Morris was, was critical of industrialization and extreme urbanization. And in, in, in ways though that overlapped with uh, Marx and Engels, if you look at the Communist Manifesto in part two, Marx and Engels in their, their 10 point proposals talk about the need for the dispersal of urban populations. They thought that uh, a society that was polarized between the urban and the rural was um, going to be an alienated society. And also a society characterized by the metabolic rift, that is um, ecological contradictions that were implicit in all of this. And Morris basically traveled the same path. And and he wrote uh, uh, together uh, with, with others, but he, he dealt with uh, the problem of of the... Of urban society and the need to create uh, a dispersal of, of population, and uh, at the same time a reinvigoration of, of both urban and rural life. And it, it was uh, very powerful. It gave uh, a concreteness to uh, what what um, Marx had been saying, but it also linked up with. Uh, Utopian socialists like Charles Fourier, and I think probably, although uh, Morris wrote actual treatises related to this, I think the the culmination of his thinking in this respect is his great novel *News from Nowhere*, where he he depicts what a society, what society could be, after a revolution. Uh, well into the future. In fact, the, the, um, the uh, novel was set in the very beginning of, of the 21st century, <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, moving along uh, into the uh, middle part of the book where Friedrich Engels steps in as kind of the main character, you first look at his early work, particularly his 1845 book, The Conditions of the Working Class in England, a book that would not only be rather influential for Marx's own later economic works but also put forward some rather radical ideas around public health and epidemiology and that would blur the lines between public and private health so how was it that Engels in his early work started to try and tie together both political and scientific questions around health and social organization under capitalism
2: well, Engels was an amazing figure because He wrote uh, The Condition of the Working Class in England when he was 24 years old. And uh, I mean, he did the research and the writing for it when he was uh, 24 years old. And if you look back uh, earlier than that, even a few years, a couple of years earlier, he had been uh, visiting factories and working conditions in Germany and raising. These kind of fundamental environmental conditions uh, affecting the working class and working relations, even uh, even before that. But he um, he was uh, the son of um, a, uh, he he was a product of the German bourgeoisie to some extent. Uh, he was uh, although he revolted against it. His father was a major industrialist in in Germany and. And Manchester in England, and uh, Engels early on traveled to to England, and eventually he he ended up uh, working in his father's business and textile uh, factory in Manchester, but but Engels was unhappy with that. He had already met Marx. He he was a product of the of the uh, critical developments in in Germany at the, um, at the time and had, had um, studied Schelling and Hegel, he was very much uh, a part of the, the Hegelian left and uh, but he brought to it a knowledge of political economy because he was he was seeing firsthand the industrial revolution and he's studying political economists because he was working. And living in this context, and so he started um, uh, traveling all around Manchester, walking around Manchester with Mary Burns, his uh, the, his his uh, love at the time, and and um, and really um, uh, his common law wife, and uh, she was Irish, and she helped introduce him to to uh, the the deeper recesses of working class life in Manchester, and he associated with the Chartist movement there, but he walked the streets in Manchester at all hours examining it and looking at what the conditions of the working class were and also studying the medical tracts and investigations into health conditions at the time. And so he wrote this wonderful work the condition of the working class in england which is not emphasized enough today in which the the emphasis was really on epidemiological problems although he's dealing with the working class and the proletariat and he was the first to introduce the notion of the industrial revolution he um, he focused especially on the health conditions the ep- epidemiological conditions so he was studying things like uh, how cholera and typhus, typhoid fever, scar- scarlet fever, whooping cough and uh, smallpox, tuberculosis and so on were affecting the working classes uh, as well as their nutrition, the alteration of their food, the conditions in the factories and uh, the disability that were were introduced and the um, working class life and, and infant mortality, all in, all in this uh, work. And he came up with this notion of social murder, which recently has been talked a lot about in, in some of the leading health journals in the world, like uh, Lancet, The Lancet. But he, he, um, he argued that since uh, society was aware of the, the conditions and the mortality being inflicted on the working class, and was not doing anything about it. That is, the upper classes were perpetuating a system where uh, you had this high mortality. While, where in working class uh, areas, the uh, infant mortality uh, up to the age of five was um, for children um, was um, 50% in the working class areas. In Manchester, half the children died before the age of five. And uh, he he called this social murder and related to, to capitalism and the class conditions. And this influenced um, the development of epidemiology in among other thinkers in his day, uh, really right up to the present. And of course, Marx was very heavily influenced by it, and in discussing the metabolic rift, he, he saw the periodic epidemics of disease that, that uh, Engels had described as a crucial aspect of the ecological contradictions of capitalism.
1: Yeah, uh, moving along to one of the longest chapters in the book, you argue that Engels' interest in philosophical dialectics preemptively prepared him for Darwin's theory of evolution, enabling him to assimilate new scientific discoveries into his philosophical and political critiques. Beyond this, his dialectical and historical materialism was able to function as a critique not only of philosophical idealism, but also overly mechanistic materialisms, something that would become incredibly important both for him and many people working in his wake. So can you explain the form of materialism he developed?
2: Well, it it may seem preposterous to say that uh, Engels was very close to the way of, of thinking that Darwin's Origin of Species represented uh, just and yet just as I show in the book, just months before, and others have pointed out, just months before uh, Darwin's origins of, of this species came out, or actually months before it was it was first presented to the scientific establishment before the book but but when Darwin and Wallace presented their ideas, at that time, Engels was thinking very much along the same lines, uh, in a, in broader terms, and and sketched it out. And it, it's quite impressive. But to see this, you have to read my book, and uh, I can't depict it here. But one of the um, important things is that Engels was one of the original subscribers to Darwin's book. I mean, they they they. You, you bought the book in advance, and he was one of the original readers. So within a very short time, within weeks of it coming out, he was writing to Marx about uh, how uh, fundamental this was and that it had destroyed teleology, that is, uh, the the um, idealist approaches to, to nature completely and reflected uh, their own views. Now the, the problem that materialism faced in the 19th century was that there was this conflict between idealism and materialism, but it, say if you look at it in terms of Descartes, Descartes had created a dualism. He said the mind, which he associated with human beings and with the soul was uh, on on one side and on the other were was nature animals which were treated like machines. And this is really kind of a way of looking at the birth of a mechanistic view. So everything, you know, that the the um, split between idealism and materialism, which was actually reflected in a dualistic way in Descartes' thought itself, was that all agency and um, all agency and all creativity was associated and of course the mind was associated with, uh, with um, the realm of the ideal and the realm of the material was treated into um, in, in purely mechanical terms. So animals were nothing more than machines. And the um, materialism then developed in this mechanistic way at the time uh, with uh, the machine metaphor. And it, it made it important discoveries because, because it did have a kind of materialist approach. But for thinkers like Marx and, and Engels who had passed through uh, Hegel's dialectics, uh, this was impossible. That idealism and, and mechanical materialism sort of reinforced each other and that a meaningful approach to reality and science and the world would be critical of both. So Marx and Engels argued for materialism, but not a a view of of agency that was was, uh, divorced from motion. I'm not a view of, sorry, of, of matter that was divorced from motion, agency, evolution, and so on. And they brought a dialectical perspective, a much more complex dialectical perspective to the um, understanding of the material world. And in that way, they were able to, to overcome the dualism between um, between idealism and materialism. But they simply rejected me- mechanistic reductionist materialism. And for Marx, this goes all the way back to his doctoral dissertation on Epicurus. The, great ancient materialist uh, Epicurus had rejected a mechanical materialism and uh, instead uh, it was, it had within it, in Epicurus's thought, there was what Marx called an imminent dialectics. And uh, this was um, the way that um, Marx and Engels tended uh, to go forward. This is the way they constructed a socialist critique, understanding materialism as not divorced from life, evolution, agency, uh, creativity, uh, emergence, and so on, but as, as involving that. And so, f- therefore, life itself and human beings and society could be fully explained within a, a materialist framework.
1: Yeah, so... In Engels's later work, you show his dialectical and historical materialism being applied to a host of new scientific and political questions. Although somewhat fragmented and incomplete due to his later efforts largely being dominated by trying to compile the later volumes of Marx's Capital, you still find a dynamic and rigorous application of his theories to questions of gender depression, slavery, racial discrimination, and labor, and the way those were all connected. Um, and beyond that, all of this was in a context where scientific debates had deeply political implications, especially in the wake of Darwin's 1871 descent of man. So what do we learn from Engels's later work here?
2: Well, just going on from what I was talking about before, we, for Marx and Engels, everything is historical. Everything changes. There is no rigidity uh, a mechanistic a reductionist worldview doesn't work. And this applies to all aspects of reality. And, and um, if you look at um, material physical forces, they follow a pattern of emergence, that is the, um, that as, the, as we say within science that um, the explanation of the different levels of reality have to do with different forms of organization which represent different merchant powers. So everything uh, was in process of change and evolution and historical development. And if you wanted to answer questions for Marx and Engels, you look for, for origins and Engels really tried to look at the origins of the family. He tried to look at the, the origins of human beings. Where did, how did uh, human beings emerge? He he raised questions about the origins of life, and uh, and and so on. So this was his his um, approach, and in these later philosophical works and uh, and and critiques, he does that uh, very effectively. And and the most important manuscript from a strictly ecological standpoint is his. The part played by labor in the transition from ape to man, and um, Engels developed. I mean, at a time that Darwin's descent of 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 um, man came about, he was um, Darwin was trying to explain the uh, the evolution of of human beings, and having a great deal of trouble, he tried to. Uh, explain it in terms of of um, of uh, sexual uh, selection and he tried to um, he he um, one of the problems that darwin had was he was still had this the kind of cerebral emphasis which is tied in with the dominant ideological perspective that if you wanted to see understand the evolution of of human beings, it had to be the brain developed first because we identify ourselves primarily with the brain. And so there are aspects of that in his thought. And while he talked about the, the role of the hand and uh, in, in the development of the hand as maybe coming before the brain at one point in, in his uh, work, he, um, he associated that with warfare rather than labor. But Engels came in, and, he, and in part played by labor in the transition from ape to man, he argued that um, human evolution, the, the emergence of human beings, of, of the of human species, or what we call hominins, to now, uh, was uh, the result of, of our interaction with the earth. Uh, Engels said everything affects everything else in this in in this um, um, manuscript, and he. And he um, argued that the core, though, of human development was was labor. So that human beings coming out of um, out of uh, ape-like species had, you know, that the and um, coming down from the trees that they had developed erect posture, and this allowed the hands to develop, and they began to to try to transform their environment by developing tools as extensions of themselves. And with that developed um, sociability and language and, and the brain all evolved out of this. And this is now called gene culture coevolution. And Stephen Jay Gould argued that, that the greatest theorist of, of um, gene culture coevolution in the 19th century was not Charles Darwin, but um, but um, Frederick Engels in in the part played by labor and the transition of man of ape to man, and so this was really fundamental. But he also went on to uh, talk about um, the ecological problem. He talked about how uh, we were actually Unintentionally destroying our environment by the way production was being carried carried out, and he used this metaphor of the revenge of nature that would would eventually come back at us if we destroyed the the material ecological conditions uh, that um, that um, underpinned uh, human society. It was one of the most fundamental, most powerful statements on the human dependence on the ecological world and the contradictions of how we were we were relating to the ecological world ever written. And then he also um, dealt in the origin of the family, private property and the state, with the, um, the origin of, of, um, of the oppression of women and how that was related to the development of the monogamous family. And he was trying to write a work on the three forms of slavery, but the most fundamental form of slavery, uh, he, uh, he argued, was, was this, the enslavement of women, and, and so did Marx and that the, that the capital relation actually arose out of the enslavement of women, something that's not really understood very much about his thought, but it's extraordinarily important in terms of today and how we build a socialist movement.
1: Yeah, moving uh, beyond angles and looking forward, you turn to the work of George Tansley, an English botanist who would push for some major shifts both within and beyond the field. Early in his career, he would put out a small philosophical manifesto, one that demanded that botany needed to have a more contextual approach, that plants needed to be understood within their ecological context. This kicked off a rather intense debate within the profession, with one person even accusing Tansley of botanical Bolshevism. Can you explain the demands Tansley was arguing ought to be made in terms of the scope of botany and the debate it would kick off?
2: Well, I mentioned that Tansley was a student of of E. Ray Lancaster, uh, Marx's friend, and Tansley actually. Grew up, sort of grew up at the uh, the Working Men's College in London, which his 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 uh, parents were uh, fundamental uh, to the Working Men's College. So he spent all of this this time there. Even though he came from a bourgeois background, he was very integrated into uh, into those working class issues from an early age and. Uh, Workingmen's College, um, for example, William Morris uh, spoke there. Uh, uh, most of the, the left figures uh, in England, in London at the time, spoke uh, at the Workingmen's College. Friends of of Marx, and so Tansley had this background, and he um, he had a very hard time, even though he was he was an extraordinary uh, accomplished individual, because he had this ma- a materialist. He was very strong materialist, and and uh, botany was dominated by ecological sorts of views at the time. Kind of the the final causes uh, teleology, and and this was was rooted into it, especially and into some of the structural traditions. So to explain uh, plant communities, it was all explained in terms of of the. Uh, what the plant needed to do, and um, and what were the final purposes, and so on. But Tansley, you know, which was had very teleological religious tone, and this came out of very conservative traditions that were not really Darwinian, and Tansley came out of very much out of the the Darwinian tradition. I mean, Lancaster, the most famous Darwinist in in um, England in the late 19th century was was Tansley's teacher Tansley also couldn't break into the ecological profession fully he couldn't get a he couldn't get into the Royal Society because of this accusation that he was a materialist and then a but and and a botanical um, bolshevik and, uh, and so on so he actually quit to e- the ecological profession even though he was a Editor of a major journal, and uh, and uh, he ended. He was the founder of the British Ecological Society. He kind of quit the ecological profession for a while, went to study with Sigmund Freud, and became a Freudian. And wrote uh, a book on the new psychology, which was a bestseller in England. The first really influential work on Freudian psychology, but it, it actually wasn't very. Freudian, it was much more social in its orientation. And Tansley was talking about the need to advance the proletariat and promote, uh, you know, a socialist uh, politics and and the needs of women in the context of this. And then somehow he he got back into ecology. He got, um, um, he worked his way into the profession finally uh, but he was always in this struggle, and he ended up being in a struggle, particularly uh, with uh, Jan Smuts in in South Africa. I don't want to get into a long story. This is an interesting story, though. Some of you, you know, if you've never heard of General Jan Smuts, who was a general in in South Africa and, and became prime minister of South Africa and was the the originator of the term holism and wrote his influential work on holism. You, you may not have heard of him directly, but a lot of you have seen the film Gandhi, and you know the general who arrested Gandhi in the film Gandhi. That was that was Jan Smuts. So you, if you're interested, you can look at that. But Jan Smuts uh, developed the notion of holism, and it was a very influential idealist approach to ecology. The problem was that he he also was the originator of the concept of apartheid, and he mixed his holism his eco his ecology with a th- with a theory of of racial hierarchy, and this was t- and and with idealist notions of ecology that were prominent at the time, and this was too much for Tansley, so this caused Tansley to write uh, his great. Work: the use and abuse of uh, of vegetation. A very terrible title, but um, the um, the use and abuse of of um, vegetative concepts and terms, which is important because that was where the concept of ecosystem was introduced, and it was reduced. It was introduced on materialist foundations, using notions of. Nutrient cycles—the connection between between um, the the living world and and the the organic and the inorganic world—all brought together in terms of ecosystem, building on things he'd learned from Lancaster as well as the systems theory theory of um, of, of Hyman Levy, who was a major uh, British Marxist mathematician, and um, and, and rooted in the in the whole materialist tradition but it was it was actually an attempt the ecosystem concept was introduced to destroy um, ecological racism of trump's kind and and idealist approaches to ecology and and uh, teleological conceptions and it, it became um, influential it became our primary approach uh, approach to ecology, and it had this foundation in metabolism, um, the, the concept that Marx had utilized. So, uh, th- this is very important, and, um, and it, people don't know this history because it hasn't been told, probably because uh, from an establishment perspective, this is a story that would, they would rather not tell.
1: Yeah, Uh, jumping right off of that, you've been alluding to my next question. Um, Also in this chapter, you look at uh, Lancelot Hogben, a British zoologist who took the ecological ideas that have been being developed the last few chapters and took them directly into political debates, particularly with uh, the aforementioned J.C. Smuts and his holistic theories. So throughout these sections, you not only unpack this uh, debate they had, but also, uh, consistently make it very clear that this debate was not purely theoretical. There were very important political implications to it. So can you unpack the dynamics of this debate and what the political stakes here were?
2: Well, with Hogman, again, the story, again, um, really starts with uh, with smuts. Hogman was, a, was um, a Marxist and he he was more skeptical about dialectical analysis but but uh he he also was um, a developer of dialectical analysis and uh he saw himself as coming out of the morris tradition in many ways so he mixed morris uh with marx but he was um, a major uh british uh, marxist scientist uh, along with other figures like J.B.S. Haldane and J.D. Burnell and Hyman Levy and uh, Lancelot, Le- well, and and um, and um, you know, well, others at the time, um, and he um, he in he got in a debate with Smuts uh, the. Um, the nature of life debate or the nature of life controversy in South Africa basically the british association met in South Africa and they decided to set up this nature of life debate really around smuts's ideas because smuts was such a prominent figure in the british association he later became president of the british association and and uh even though he wasn't actually a scientist, he was more of an amateur botanist, but he was such a prominent figure that he gave a lot of um, color and significance to science. So so it was thought. And so they set up this debate with Smuts and they needed somebody who would oppose Smuts, who would be strong. So they brought Lancelot Hogman, who was quite young at that time, and. they Smuts and and Hogman had a uh, a mudslinging argument. Uh, uh, the nature of life controversy. It, it's really worth reading, especially Hogben's part in it. And um, but uh, Smuts was promoting his notion of of uh, holism, which was very teleological, idealistic, and related to his his. Um, his racist views, his ecological racism. And Hogben went after him and and challenged all of that and provided an argument from a materialist and, and perspective and denied the biological significance of race. And so this was a very famous uh, controversy and um, Hogben at the same time that he was engaged in this debate with, with Smuts and the the controversy at that time, he also had a a secret secret compartment uh, in his kitchen, and uh, with he was involved with his his wife and Charles, who was also a famous uh, biologist. They were engaged in in smuggling. Um, a, Blacks out of South Africa who are f- who are fleeing smut's as justice or injustice, and uh, so they they Ina um, Charles at one point. I mean, they set this up. She had to do it because she is a white woman, and and uh, they they believe that the South African police and military would never stop a white woman driving a car, uh, suspecting her of hiding. Um, Black men, but she she um, rescued some black men who were going to be lynched, um, and they they worked this out, and they they were in the the um, the um, trunk of her car, and she had to drive over um, um, this long expanse uh, doing this, and then they hid the the uh, escapees in in this compartment um, in their house, and eventually things got too rough for Hogben then the apartheid. Um, that smuts was promoting, propo- promoting got too severe, so Hogman left and took a job um, in london. but after he got back to England, he devoted himself to attacking the genetic theory of race which had been developing, and he used his mathematics and his methods to destroy the the genetic theory of race so the the and uh, j b s Holding, who was um A Marxist biologist and uh, basically the the, um, one of the two leading figures in the new Darwinian synthesis in in England uh, joined him, and they they destroyed the biological notion of race, the genetic basis of race, and this goes all the way down to Richard Lewontin's uh, work and and our time. So this was uh, really important, and it grew out of a struggle against ecological racism and apartheid, and um, the, they paid for it later because they, the leaders in the British Eugenics Society went after them uh, as, as communists later on and uh, to get their revenge. But they, they basically destroyed the back of the eugenics movement in England.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Moving forward, uh, the Second International Congress on the History of Science and Technology held in the summer of 1931 would exert a lasting influence on British science and politics for some time, as a last-minute group of scientists from the Soviet Union would present a series of papers that would give Marxist dialectics, particularly of the Engelsian variety a second life after lying somewhat dormant in British scientific communities for some time. After this conference, there would be a renewed effort to study science dialectically and historically. What did the Soviets present at this conference and what was the effect it would have on a later newer generation of British researchers in their own theoretical and political development?
2: Well, it's another interesting story because this was in 1931 when trans-continental um, air flights were almost unknown. And they were having this, this second international conference on the history of science in, in London. And suddenly, although they, they had uh, invited a, a Russian biologist to attend the conference Stalin had said no, and they weren't expecting anybody to come from Russia. And suddenly, this plane lands in in London, and it has uh, Nikolai Bukharin, who was one of the three leading figures in the Russian Revolution, on it, along with other figures like Nicholas Vavilov, who was um, uh, the the famous Russian geneticist, who decided... This, um, de- determined um, where the origins, the, the geographical locations in which the major forms of germplasm originated uh, in in history, and where the where um, where the main sources of germplasm for our fundamental crops were, and who was a leading figure in genetics. He was on the plane, as long as as well as. Uh, Boris Hessen, who was a, a Russian physicist and uh, who was to present um, a, a, a talk on the history of science that, that uh, challenged the whole history of science up until that point, and B. Zara Zavodovsky, who was um uh, attacking, wrote it was a, a physicist who was criticizing vitalism. They were all there, and others, and they um, they they arrived, and they they turned for for the left scientists at the conference. People like Joseph Needham, and and uh, J.D. Brunell, and and Levy, and and Hogben, and and um, others. They 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 turned everything upside down. They suddenly created a new view of the world on a more materialist, dynamic materialist, dialectical materialist, ecological view of the world was suddenly present. Of course, Hessen said, well, uh, the idea that had always been there, that uh, there, yeah, Newton was born and then there was light. Uh, and so that was the explanation of the development of science was wrong, that actually even Isaac Newton uh, could be understood as developing in a historical context that um, reflected certain material conditions. And and this, uh, threw, this suddenly made science historical uh, for the first time. So all of this... Um, Was going on, and for these British scientists, it had a huge impact. They suddenly started reading Engels, studying the the um, um, dialectics of nature of Engels, and uh, and um, relating Darwin and Marx, and uh, and building ecological conceptions. uh, And it grew out of that. Now. Uh, now, some of these thinkers like Haldane and Bernal and Needham and, and uh, Levy are, are criticized for, for having been coming out of uh, Stalinist uh, science, and I don't want to get into that. But the important thing to understand here is that that all of these British Marxist thinkers were primarily influenced by the Soviet scientists that arrived in 1931. This is what influenced them and set them off. And they, they retained a, um, a connection to those scientists. However, all of those, almost all of the scientists who visited uh, London in 1931 were executed um, by by Stalin. Well, in the purges, they were executed because ecology, uh, a, a fundamental ecology was seen as too dangerous uh, in, in um, Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. And so these British thinkers sort of carried on a tradition that had been eliminated in the Soviet Union, and uh, but they carried it on within British science and ended up uh, influencing later developments. Um, they represented then a, a very special tradition.
1: Yeah, moving along uh, to a figure who I was surprised to find in this book, you look at the British cultural critic Christopher Codwell, and you find that behind his essays on literature and philosophy, there was also a figure who was deeply interested in the sciences, appearing in titles of his such as The Crisis in Physics. The crisis he detected was a problem not just in the natural sciences, but in society more generally, and had to be understood in the context of a broader issue that stemmed from a limited bourgeois worldview that was either trapped in philosophical idealism or the overly me- mechanistic materialism we've been discussing. So what was Caldwell getting at in his scientific thinking?
2: Well, introducing Codwell, who's who's... Real name was uh, Christopher Saint John Sprigg, but he took on the pen name of Christopher Codwell, and that's how we we know him. He, you know, he was extraordinary figure. Um, we have to remember that he died at age twenty nine in the Spanish Civil War on the Republican side in his first battle, um, uh, manning um, a a um, machine gun with a with um, a comrade and um, and uh, trying to uh, give his you know the rest of of the British forces the uh, chance to retreat, and so uh, he he was a figure who only wrote uh, serious works. I mean, he wrote some um, works in. And on air flight, and and uh, poetry, and uh, early poetry, and um, and th- things like that, and some and mystery, not detective novels, early on, but in his last few years, he became he he's, he wrote illusion and reta- uh, reality, which was was his great you know aesthetic work, which was a bit of a jumble because it was very, it was inf- it was influenced. Um, partly by Freud, and then halfway when he was reading it, he became a Marxist. And uh, it's an enormously creative, powerful work, but not quite, um, didn't quite gel because he, um, he was in transition when he wrote it. And after that, he wrote uh, you know his great collection of essays, Studies and Further Studies and A Dying Culture, and like you said, The Crisis, crisis of Physics. But also his um, a manuscript that he wrote, um, a "Heredity and Development on Biology," was not published until the 1980s, because it um, it criticized the then dominant view of uh, of um, in the, uh, of evolution in, in the, uh, or attacks on evolution. Uh, associated with Lysenko in the, in the Soviet Union. So it was not published by the Communist Party, which really had control of the manuscripts and, and uh, wasn't published until the 1980s, um, half century, uh, more than a half century after Codwell died. And, uh, but it was enormously important. In all of his work, he, he ties together aesthetics and dialectics and science. He takes as kind of his motto, William Morris's notion that art and science are the two primary forms of culture. And he uses dialectics influenced by Marx and Engels to bring them together. And in the process, and particularly in Heredity and Development, but also in some of the later essays of studies uh, and further studies in a dying culture, particularly further studies, he develops this very powerful dialectical ecological view that um, is is extraordinary, and uh, I try to explain in this book. Most of the scholarship on 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 Codwell is is on simply his literary works, or his, his literary criticism, uh, which is important. But in many ways, the synthesis uh, he he brought uh, in terms of uh, Bringing together art and science and ecology uh, was, in my view, and dialectics was a more fundamental contribution and very powerful. Rob Wallace, who, um, a famous epidemiologist, um, and I, I got to know Rob Wallace because I had written about Codwell at the end of Marx's ecology. And Rob Wallace um, picked up on that and wrote a marvelous, he's a, a, a major scientist and he wrote a um, um an essay on, on Codwell's uh, e- his evolutionary and ecological views, which we published in Month Review. And that helped me in terms of developing this and putting it together in, in my book. But um, I think that Codwell is somebody that we have to return to because he connects everything that's important.
1: Yeah, moving along to the final main chapter of the book, you look at the lives of many of these British scientists after the Second World War. So at this point in their history, their socialist politics made them the targets of various attacks, often of questionable quality and for reasons that were more based on political biases than good scientific rigor. The long term effect was that many figures we've been discussing had to go through various forms of metamorphosis although this didn't always lead to an abandonment of their moral principles so much as finding more suitable outlets for them, such as an anti-war or anti-nuclear movements or an anti-racist and anti-colonial struggles. So can you tell us about the pressure figures such as Hogben went through and how we continu- how uh, they continued to find outlets for their ideas throughout the Cold War?
2: Well, all of these figures came under really serious attack in the Cold War years. And, um, I mean, there was McCarthyism in the United States, but there was also very serious um, Cold War attacks going on in England. And the CIA was actually financing a lot of uh, the uh, publications that were carrying out um, these attacks on on scientists and and socialist thinkers in both uh, Britain and the United States. So there was a a very vicious battle going on. All of these figures, uh, Haldane, Burnell, Levy, uh, Hogben, and Needham came under attack in this um, period and they all had to deal with it. And when I was first uh, addressing these issues, I thought, well, this this book will just this story will just end in defeat. All of these people were just drummed out of uh, of things, and uh, they just went down to defeat. But I was amazed at the courage and the ingenuity of all of these thinkers who continued to to fight in various ways. Uh, uh, the um, Needham uh, was. Basically, became you know he he traveled to China during the war. He became, I mean, he learned Chinese. He became uh, the leading sinologist in Britain, the leading expert on China in Britain, and uh, and and certainly of, of uh, Chinese science and wrote uh, uh, these masterpieces uh, on on the history of Chinese science that changed our whole way of looking at it. And uh, the um, Levy uh, discovered uh, that that um, that in the Stalin era, their anti-Semitism had gained ground in the Soviet Union, and he he fought within and then outside the Communist Party to um, get that story out, and um, and he joined up with um, with Others like uh, partially joined up with others like E.P. Thompson that that left the party at the time, and um, the um, in terms of Hogben, Hogben ended up helping out uh, third world governments in Africa and and Latin America, and engaged in a continuing battle uh, against. Biological racism and the and the notion of the genetic basis of race and uh, and supported the peace movement and Bernal um, became a leading figure in the international peace movement and um, opponent of uh, of um, of nuclear arms and uh, and wrote The Origins of Life um, to uh, explain to explain how evolution connected uh, with ecology, essentially, and, and, uh, and how, um, how life had evolved and how life was now under threat. So uh, all of these, these figures um, ended up um, engaging in uh, incredible battles at the time. Haldane, J.B.S. Haldane went to India uh, the Cold War was so serious in in Britain he 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 said to hell with it and he went to India to support India's development India was at that time at a very progressive state they're trying to promote economic development they had planning they were interested in in addressing ecological issues and and um, he joined in their effort so what amazed me was that uh, all of these figures didn't give up. They just fought, found other ways of, of fighting the battles, and they continued to make uh, huge contributions, even in the context of the Cold War, by, by turning more directly to peace and ecology and issues of that kind.
1: Yeah, that was an excellent part of that story. I loved hearing about it. So in the book's epilogue, you turn to later ecological activism, much of it inaugurated by Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring. So without discounting the importance of that text, you do a lot of work to contextualize it and show how that book and the movement it inspired belongs in the story you've been telling us. In particular, you point to some of Carson's influences, Uh, including figures such as Hermann Joseph Muller, a Marxist scientist and geneticist who she cited several times in the book and who in turn praised the book upon its publication. So what do these quiet connections tell us about later decades of ecological activism, uh, connections that have traditionally been downplayed or ignored?
2: Well, actually, I I start the epilogue with... uh... With the hydrogen bomb tests and Castle Bravo and and other tests, but particularly Castle Bravo, where it was discovered that um, the hydri- hydrogen bomb tests were were actually uh, emitting radiation throughout the globe, and it and first the the uh, U.S. government tried to hide the fact, but but scientists detected it, and within, within a year they had to admit to it. And so I I, I deal with the first great environmental movement of um, of the 20th century or of the the post-war years is, was led by scientists um, figures like um, um, Linus Pauling and Albert Einstein, but also, you know, Barry Commoner and uh, and uh, the the scientists who who uh, were dealing with radiation and and in the, the the battle with that basically developed the ecological, the environmental movement, the modern movement, and um, and some of these figures. Uh, crucial figures like Barry Commoner actually were directly influenced by by the British um, Marxist scientists we're talking about. Barry Commoner was a socialist and and built on some of these same ideas. And there were other figures, central figures involved, uh, who um, in the in the anti-nuclear struggle. Who were in a similar place, and of course, as I, I emphasize, the the British science Marxist scientists had been very much involved in the anti nuclear and peace struggles. So Rachel Carson actually came out of this. If if you read her, um, the Sea Around Us, she's already talking about the uh, the radiation from from Castle Bravo and and the effects on the ocean and the um what what we we call um, biomagnification and bioaccumulation and what she did was and she she understood the significance of this because she she had been very influenced by hg muller who uh, was a who won the nobel prize uh, in science for his work in genetics and and uh, radiation, how um, uh, radiation radiation produces genetic abnormalities and um, mutations and, and uh, the consequences of that. Now, Muller was had been it was a, a, a scientist uh, biologist in Texas who had gone to, to Russia to work with Vavilov and and fled, fled Russia actually um, during the purges when Vavilov was under attack. Eventually, he tried to support him. Eventually, he got out by joining the Spanish Civil War, and uh, as as a medical assistant. And then he he came back to the United States. He became very anti-Stalinist and worked with uh, the U.S. government. But he was never. Fully cooperative because he was too true a scientist. He was very much of a. He he had written about dialectics and materialism, and when it came to issues of radiation, he disturbed the Atomic Energy Commission by speaking out and saying that even a small amount of radiation was dangerous. That there was no there was no level of radiation um, that could be generated um, uh, by. Um, through nuclear weapons that was not dangerous. And uh, so, and he influenced influenced Rachel Carson. He supported her and uh, she learned about basically biomagnification and bioaccumulation from his work and then extended it to pesticides. And then when her book came out, her her biggest defender at the time, because she was under scientific attack, was, was Muller, So this was, um, you know, it's a complex story, but, um, but it reflected um, a whole question of materialist relation to science. And Carson was the first to introduce the notion of, of ecology to the US public. And, and one of her lectures, a brilliant lecture she, she gave, and she introduced ecology by working, going back to the theory of the origin of life that JBS Haldane had developed at the same time as um, Operin in, in, in Russia, um, both inspired by uh, the work of, of Engels and his, his speculation on the causes on the origin of life, and they developed the first, the modern theory of the origin of life. How is it that life could have, um, have um, come about uh, when, when uh, uh, there, <laughs> you know, when we know that um, there's no s- spontaneous generation, and they showed that in the early conditions of, of the Earth such spontaneous generation was, was possible, but the appearance of life itself changed the conditions on earth and in, in the atmosphere that made spontaneous generation no, no longer possible. And in the process, they tied up with, um, with Vernadsky's notions, uh, Russian biologist um, Vernadsky's, or geophysicist, physicist um, Vernadsky's notion of the biosphere, and came up with the funda- some of the fundamental ideas that um, govern earth system science today. So, so Rachel Carson was using these concepts to explain ecology, to explain how precious a thing that life is, how it came about, and how we could end up destroying it if we uh, allowed um, a system of, you know, what she said is a, a profit system. Uh, govern our our relation to the earth.
1: Yeah, that brings us through uh, the book itself, but I want to move past the book with a couple final questions. Um, first of all, uh, the last couple years of uh, living under the COVID crisis has forced a lot of us to rethink a lot of things regarding Public health and its relation to other social and economic dynamics. But one thing I think many people are currently wrestling with is the fact that it is taking so long for us, especially in the United States, uh, which was the first place to really get uh, quality vaccine access. It's really taking us a while to get past it. Initially, a lot of people assume that Donald Trump's incompetency was driving our high numbers of cases. But we're now over a year into Biden's presidency and still being hit with various waves. And our biggest wave even happened in early 2022. So what are the frameworks provided by eco-socialism give us in terms of better understanding how this pandemic is playing out and what would be needed to truly address it?
2: Well, I actually... Think that the the uh, leading proponent, the leading representative of the tradition of ecological historical materialism that uh, I have been talking about, the 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 leading figure today, certainly since since um, Richard Levins uh, died, is Rob Wallace, who um, I've mentioned before. Is an epidemiologist who deals with uh, the origin of origins of pandemics, who explored the origins of COVID-19, who was one of the first to explain how this um, really the first to explain how this uh, developed out of our destruction of of the ecology through the role of agribusiness, and and um, that the whole. Problem is related to commodity chains and to uh, the neoliberal ordering of our our um, medical system. He he put it all together, uh, building on this same critical tradition of uh, ecological um, Marxism and explicitly, you know, uh, writing about um, about uh, Codwell in his earlier work um, dealing with the question of the metabolic rift and how it relates to to uh, the development of disease, looking at um, how the capitalist system has played into this. And there are other people like um, Nancy Krieger and so on who who have uh, Mike Davis who've developed this, but, but uh, uh, Rob Wallace is a fundamental figure and he's, um, leading representative in what we call structural one health um the uh, one health is now the kind of holistic approach to to um pandemics that's developed and is really part of the establishment they brought together different fields veterinary science um um, the um, medical field um, epidemiologists um, and and uh, just about every field you can imagine, except for um, uh, the, any critical political economy. Now, basically, uh, Wallace argues that the key to understanding what's happened is, is to understand capitalism and the capitalist political economy and agribusiness and how it's created these phenomena. And also how it makes particular societies more vulnerable than others. Uh, one might be critical of um, of um, China in a lot of respects. I mean, I have my own views on that, but uh, it is it is true that um, that um, China, I think, after May two thousand and twenty, up up until this year, had only three people die. Of of um, COVID-19, well, um, we're we're approaching a million in the United States, and I do think that that has to do with different social structures and and priorities. One can say all well, one wants to, you know, all one wants um, about authoritarianism, but there's much more to it than that. This is. Um, something that uh, the Chinese population believes in and cooperates with in and, and has different organizational ways of dealing with but when you have that kind of discrepancy in the mortality rates uh, it means a lot there there is there are things about a neoliberal capitalist society uh, that um, make it very vulnerable to to uh, high mortality in this case. But it's also true, I think, that if you look at the mortality, as Rob Wallace himself emphasizes, it's the most vulnerable who are seen as expendable in this society who are dying, right? It's um it's uh, people of color, it's um the elderly, it's um the disabled, the um and so on. Who are dying in far higher numbers, and in the kind of society we have, um, where of devil takes the hindmost, right? We just uh, that is accepted as as wor- as worthwhile in in uh, as uh, as long as the goal is the accumulation of capital. We the idea is we have to accept things like this. Um, because people are expendable, profits are not. And uh, this is a problem of our, our, of our society. The uh, wealth has concentrated even more during the pandemic. Well, while people have been dying. And I think that Frederick Engels, if you were here today, would call that social murder. In fact, The Lancet and other medical journals have called it social murder turning back to Frederick Engels in that respect. So I, I think that um, what we've been talking about here is very relevant.
1: Yeah, I thought of it a lot when reading the chapters on Engels, definitely. So moving along and turning to the climate crisis, there's very little doubt now, especially among young people, that we're heading towards ecological catastrophe this has led to a number of youth-led initiatives demanding more radical change, as well as a broader wave of political radicalization among young people. If there are lessons these early eco-socialists can give these movements today, what would they be? How should the insights developed here and throughout this book inform the struggle for a more sustainably organized society?
2: Well, there's there's all sorts of things, obviously, and I just finished teaching a class in environmental sociology where my my students are are very excited about um, possibilities of environmental justice and eco-socialism in terms of of dealing with these issues and we we talked about the connections to say uh, you know Engels' discussion of social murder but look at um uh, Engels's notion that everything is connected to everything else, or he said, every, every um, everything affects everything else, and um, this ecological standpoint is really necessary. We can't have a reductionist view that says we can we can abuse we can we can treat nature as something to to um, uh, expropriate and exploit and to diso- Destroy and treat as an externality without recognizing that we ourselves are part of nature, which is is actually a, a statement from Engels's part in in in, um, in transition of of, um, of the part played by labor in the transition of um, the ape to man. He he says that human beings um, are part of nature, and this is what we we have to understand. We have to understand all of these these connections. We have to understand that capitalism is is very much embedded in this ecological destruction and metabolic rift, in in the sort of uh, disruptions we've been talking about. And it's not as though capitalism didn't bring things to the world that were good. Marxists would say, well. Capitalism was an improvement over feudalism. But the point is that we are now in the process of destroying the Earth as as a home for humanity. And that says that we have to change our mode of production. We have to change our way of relating to nature. We have to create a world of ecological sustainability and substantive equality. that, that sets the stage of sustainable human development. And this is a very uh, materialist, materialist and dialectical way of looking at things that comes out of all of these thinkers. We have to, we have, to have the view that William Morris had that um, uh, our, our relation to nature has to be an aesthetic one and not just um, to do with use. We have to recognize the innate value of the world around us, innate in the sense that we are part of it, and and really can't separate ourselves uh, from it unless we are generating destruction. Marx himself uh, had the most radical notion of sustainability in in the 19th century, or probably ever. He said that he said at one point in Capital. Uh, we don't own the earth. Uh, He said that uh, even all the people uh, on the, all the nations and people on the planet don't own the earth. We, we uh, simply hold it and and trust uh, for future generations must maintain, we must maintain it for, for the chain of human generations. I think that's, The quote is more elegant than the way I've presented it. But the point is that's how we define sustainability. And we define it in terms of maintaining the world, the planet, the ecology, the earth, life, um, our existence, for the chain of human generations, for generations to come. And right now we're destroying it for the generations that are here as well as the generations that are to come, and we're doing it because we have this notion that we own the earth, and we can expropriate it and exploit it as we wish, rather than understanding that we have a metabolic relation to the earth, and um, this this is an ecological element that's tied to our production because it's how we produce, how we we um, carry out. Uh, our material production within our economy that really determines our ecological relations so if we're if we're destroying the planet it has to do with those relations that that uh, of production and we have to we have to alter them so this analysis all of these thinkers um, point in these directions I and mean, think how Lancaster is in the in the 19th century, uh, in his kingdom of man, in his uh, man's uh, um, effacement of, of nature, he's saying that that um, capitalism, our commercial society, is destroying the earth. And then, unless we deal with it rationally, in terms of science, in terms of of, of coevolution. He didn't use that term but that was essentially what he was saying uh, we we have no future and uh, he said that he said that in the 19 I don't know in the in the first decade of the 20th century and um, and um, more than more than a century ago but that was correct and we have to we have to Reform, reaffirm those discoveries, learn from them, and recognize there there are answers to our present society, and they've been around for a long time, but we need to go radical more. We have to be more radical and go deeper, and we have to look back to those who understood this in the beginning, and and were more radical and went deeper, um, and that's just a requirement of the future of humanity.
1: Yeah, that's a powerful note to end on. So as a final question, I always like to ask, are you working on anything now? Any any new directions you're going?
2: Well, I'm always working on something. I have a book coming out that's already in press called Capitalism in the Anthrop- Anthropocene, which uh, strangely enough is as big as The Return of Nature, around 700 pages long. But it's in press and Right now, I'm working. I've I've written two articles. One came out in March. One's coming out in April on the issue of natural capital, how the the um, how um, there are now attempts to turn nature into capital, to financialize the earth, that um, are not theoretical but are are really um, on the move, and are very dangerous because they weave together financial, the possibility of, of uh, financial and ecological crises uh, uh, playing on each other. And of course, they involve uh, expropriating much of the earth from indigenous populations. So I've been writing about that. But right now, I'm working on an article on, on the nuclear problem, because it seems to be at the forefront and, um, I'm, I'm doing, uh, an article that builds on E.P. Thompson's, uh, essay of the 1980s called, uh, Notes on Exterminism.
1: Yes. It's it's a. Got a lot to work with and all that. Yeah.
2: It's a grim reality, but, but if we face it, we can, we can, um, we can find another way. So it's called, uh, notes on exterminism for the peace and ecology movements. And it's the peace and ecology movements uh, that I think um, are the reservoirs of our hope.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we'll look forward to those. So in the meantime, John Bellamy Foster, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you.